And welcome back to another exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. What makes today's episode exciting, you ask? Well, I have a special guest here, and we will be discussing his recently published book, Marcus Furious Camillus, The Life of Rome's Second Founder. Welcome back to the program, Mark Hyden. And for those who are unfamiliar with with who Mark is, Mark, take it away. Well, the floor is mine. Well, thanks so much, Petros. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be back on your show. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to be here. And, you know, it's kind of sad that uh, your your listeners don't get to hear all the banter that we have before uh, and after um, after talking with each other on, on digging up the past. Uh, they're really missing a good treat on that. Maybe um, one I, day, maybe one day I'll uh, publish unedited uh, audio recordings. I don't know, maybe a treat for some. A stream of consciousness. Uh, no, it's good stuff. Uh, again, thank you for having me. Uh, I am Mark Hyden. Uh, I wear different hats uh, professionally. I'm director of state government affairs for a free market think tank called the R Street Institute, where uh, I try to educate lawmakers uh, and work toward getting good policies uh, enacted and try to fight against the bad ones. But some of my passions uh, really include ancient Roman history, ancient history in general. Uh, but ancient Roman history is is really where I've kind of carved out a niche. And before 2017, I started out on an odyssey. I, I never really intended on being a, a writer, a biographer, a book writer. I mean, this didn't seem like something that I really wanted to do. But I started seeing gaps. I've seen gaps out there in the contemporary record where some modern historians have largely neglected or ignored uh, some renowned and, and great men in history. So I decided that I would take that on and try to change that. My first book came out in 2017. Uh, it was about Gaius Marius, who was known as the second founder of Rome. Uh, my second book came out in 2020, and that was Romulus, about him, with the fabled first founder of Rome. And then my latest is Marcus Furius Camillus, uh, who is known as the uh, second founder. Uh, and excuse me, I think I said Gaius Marius was the second founder. He's actually the third, so I misspoke there. So uh, Marcus Furius Camillus is, is just a fantastic story that I really hope grips readers, and they find it to be just a fascinating story of, of someone who clawed his way to the top and was very selfless uh, and was an exemplar of Roman virtue. I've got to say that, you know, having read all three of your books, you have this way of writing that you know what? I seem to enjoy a lot. It's very entertaining the way you compile your information through the ancient uh, sources. You rely on a lot of these ancient uh, writers from, from Plutarch to Livy to anybody else in between. And you end up taking some of these pieces of, of a larger puzzle and, and you put them together and create this fluid, continue, continuous narrative that... I seem to enjoy a lot. And, you know, the, 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 the problem is that a lot of these sources can be contradictory. And in some cases, you do call that out. And I do appreciate that. But how frustrating must it, you know, it be when, when you stumble upon two or three different accounts? All you're trying to achieve is getting to the truth, right? Did this happen? What did this author say as, a, as opposed to what that author said? And which one is, is telling the truth? I mean, tell me about some of the, uh, the, the writing process, the research process, I should say, before you start committing this uh, into writing. Well, it can be a bit of a maddening process. Uh, starting with Gaius Marius, that one was a little bit easier because he's a well-attested individual and a lot of what they write about, the ancient writers, is factual. Of course, some things are exaggerated. You know, his flight from Sulla might not be entirely accurate. And then you have Romulus, who's a legendary character and 
I would venture to say almost none of that happened, but there might be a kernel of truth somewhere in that. And Marcus Furius Camillus, he's kind of somewhere in the middle. So he's this kind of legendary character that modern historians, none of them doubt that he was real. None of them doubt that the Gauls sacked Rome in some time around 390 BC. But they really question a lot of the canonical history, canonical story around Camillus's life. So it's really kind of a difficult path. So, I mean, you talked about the conflicting sources and they may have present different facts and completely different narratives. But sometimes even like the dates are wrong. And for starters, the Veronian chronology that a lot of the ancient Romans relied on, the historians, that's wrong. So it's off perhaps by a few years. So just to begin with, those those ages, those time periods, they're a little bit off. They can't even agree, some of these ancient writers, they can't agree on who was consular tribune or consul at the time. So it's really kind of reading through And you can try to uh, decipher which one seems like it leads you toward the truth, which one is more believable, and then looking at which one represents the canonical version of the story that the ancients believed in. And then it's trying to craft a narrative based on all of this best available evidence and weaving in kind of some modern commentary, modern archaeological findings, uh, and trying to present a beautiful story and let the, the reader go wherever they would like. Yeah. And here's the thing. A lot of these writers came long after Camillus's life. He was born, if I recall, sometime in the mid fifth century BC. And in, in the, and in terms of ancient Rome, this is very early Roman history. You know, when people, you know, think of that part of the world, they, you know, they, they're like, oh, that's not that long ago. How can this be considered an older part of uh, written Roman history? And yet it, it, it still is. I mean, the, the Greek history tends to mislead a lot of uh, individuals into thinking we can go further back, but written Roman history really doesn't go that far back. No, it doesn't. And it's really, it's really unfortunate. So it's pretty clear the Romans were very likely um, literate long before this period. So they were using writing for something, whether it was for religious uh, issues or civics, whatever it was. But if we're looking at writing that is extant from this period, I mean, really, we have fragments at best. And even that is just a tiny amount. I mean, we're talking about from some of their founding documents uh, that might have been there. But really, nothing, for the most part, has survived. You have to go, if you want to find er- some of the earliest Roman historians, I mean, you're going to have to fast forward well over 100 years to find them. So what they're doing is they're probably reporting on what's been passed down by the oral tradition, what's been passed down in whatever historical documents that they had through the government, and also through family history. So they would go through whatever the families would say uh, and try to determine that way, you know, who was, who was dictator that year, who was concert tribune. So that might've been one of the ways that they were able to piece this together. But even the ancients must have realized that there is an awful lot of guesswork in what they were doing. Back to Camillus though. He lived a, a very interesting life, I should say, at least according to the ancient historians. And he, this life, whether it's some of it is factual or not, when you see it collectively, it is has inspired so many later Romans after him to the point where they look to Camillus as a model for the Roman people. But it didn't happen overnight. At least, you know, this reading your book, this is the first time I have actually learned about this individual. So, I mean, your book catalogs his entire life 
at least from what you are able to dig up through these ancient writings. But I guess, you know, for, for our listeners, what defined Camillus's life to the point where he was seen as this pious, virtuous model of a, of, of a Roman? Uh, how did he get there? You know, it's a confluence of factors. So Camillus was very much a role model to the ancient Romans, and he was the pinnacle role model. You didn't get above him. And whether or not every story about it that that led to him being viewed as this exemplar is true or not, uh, that's something that certainly can be debated. And, you know, I've debated it as well. But you have a man who was born in ancient Rome when the it was a, a bit of a fledgling city-state at the time. It was a republic, and it was surrounded by enemies, or at least potential enemies. But he rose up. He was in a, a rather ascendant family with Latin roots. And eventually he entered the political and military realm being elected. And his first real big claim to fame was Rome was locked in what was supposedly a 10-year war with they, which was their primary uh, rival within the area. Now, was the, the war really 10 years long? Probably not. That might have been modeled after the Trojan War, just to make it a little bit more interesting. But regardless of this, Rome couldn't figure out how to sack this very well-defended city. So Camillus comes in, he's appointed dictator, and he decides we're not going to be attacking the city like we were doing before. Instead, we're going to dig a mine underneath. So they undermine the city and were able to sack it. Uh, and he promised all these riches to the gods uh, if you, he was able to be successful, which showed kind of his religious piety. Uh, and then, you know, beyond this, he also... Uh, he sacked the uh, city of Flair. He didn't sack the Fl city of Flair. He sat out on trying to sack it. And while he was going about it, there was a Feliscan school teacher who had under his tutelage all of these well-to-do children that were from very uh, from the leading families. And this school teacher brought these children out and surrendered them to Camillus as hostages, so that he could try and bring the Feliscans to their knees. But being you know the upstanding gentleman that he was, he refused to accept hostages. And as children and to abuse them as such. So he had the, the teacher stripped of his clothes and put all these rods in the school, uh, the children's hands, and they beat him as they went back. And then the city of Falari then surrendered because they were like, well, this is a good guy. You know, if Rome is really uh, this trustworthy, we don't mind surrendering to them. But the what we probably remember the most about Camillus is the sack of Rome. So these Gauls come in, they're a, a tribe known as the Senones, and they defeat Rome's legionaries in battle and they sack Rome. But the person that's missing from Rome is Camillus because the people had turned against him. He had been wrongly accused of embezzling spoils from Vey. So they had, uh, he decided to go live in exile rather than having to endure or a kangaroo court being wrongly convicted, and he lived uh, in humility in Ardia. But after uh, Rome was sacked, the Romans begged for his assistance, and despite them turning against him, his patriotism is what drove him, and he decided to lead Rome's legions, eject the Gauls, and then he defeated them in battle and massacred them uh, about eight miles beyond the city. Uh, and after this, he was reaccepted into Rome as just this conquering hero and a person that everyone should look up to. And while he, um, you know, has been known to do a lot of these great things for the, the nation of Rome, he did have a few controversial um, episodes in his life, one of which I recall of, um, I guess, during the procession after the surrender of A, when they were coming into uh, Rome and uh, he was riding a chariot pulled by four white horses. Was was this the episode? Was it following uh, Vey? Yeah. 
Okay, so this obviously disgusted a lot of um, the, the the Romans because there was a lot of underlying symbolism. I don't know if you wanted to get into that or, you know, at least if not just that, any other, let's just say, controversial things about this character. Sure. And there's certainly some controversy around him, especially earlier in his career. Um, you know, I'd like to blame it on youth, but he wasn't that young of a person when all of this happened. But yes, after he sacked Vey, the Romans were so excited that they provided him uh, what was known as a triumph. It was this celebratory procession that you snaked through Rome. Uh, everyone clapped for you and you you drank prodigious amounts of wine and ate a lot of food. Uh, it was it was a great time and the Romans loved it. And pretty much every general wanted to have this because this was a huge honor but he let his humility go and uh, it was about himself he got a little selfish there and he was enjoying all the attention and styled himself after the god jupiter which the romans at the time thought that was pretty offensive and it was a bit too edgy for them now romans of later times they would have shrugged their shoulders that would have meant anything to them but he i I presume as he was snaking his way through the city he noticed onlookers probably recoiling in disgust because of what they viewed as perhaps some form of blast for me or something along those lines. Now, Camillus enjoyed other triumphs after this. But one thing I think we can say for certain is that he learned his lesson and he did not ride in a chariot pulled by four white horses. But this also coincides with another episode that he made a bit of a mistake on. So before sounding the attack, the final attack that led to the sack of A, he promised a tithe of the spoils, 10% of the spoils to the gods, and uh, particularly to Apollo, the Delphic Apollo. And he sounded the charge, they was taken, and they let the Romans kind of divvy up the spoils and take them. So did he forget to collect the spoils as some of the ancient Roman or ancient writers wrote? perhaps, or did he think that the Romans were going to deliver 10% of their takings on their own? It's impossible to know at this point, but we do know that eventually this issue was raised that they didn't deliver what was due to the gods. So they required the Romans to deliver it themselves. And I don't know about you, you know, if someone gives you a windfall and then later on they say, actually 10% of that, you got to give up. You might be a little bit peeved. And it turned out there were a lot of Romans that weren't too pleased with having to do it. Here's the thing, though. This is a theme that you find in a lot of Roman role models. Aeneas had his, let's just say, his downfalls. While he was a truly pious character, you know, he had. There were certain episodes where he just didn't live up to that role. Temptations or or moments of weaknesses, and it's the same same themes that you also see with with Romulus as well, especially in the early days of uh, the founding of Rome. You see a lot of these little episodes that make these characters human, I should say. And it makes me wonder, is this another case of this? Are the ancient writers writing these uh, to make these, these stories that much more real and relatable to the Roman people? Yeah, it's hard to tell if some of these are literary inventions or not, but there is something about Roman heroes that some of them are not as compelling. And I say this particularly about Romulus. I mean, you're talking about a guy that may have killed his brother, abducted a bunch of women, and then raped them, uh, and then become turned into this tyrant. And then somehow this is like a hero, and they deified him afterwards, and all the Romans think he's a great guy. Uh, Thankfully, Camillus was not of that ilk. 
he made some mistakes, but those are really, they pale in comparison to some of his predecessors and successors as well. And I think one of the things that you can see with the case of Camillus is that he didn't repeat his mistake. So he likely was never pulled by four white horses, which in my opinion is probably a pretty minor crime compared to what some others have done. And then the issue with the spoils, he was a, a very pious religious person beforehand. Uh, that was a mistake, however it, it came about, or an oversight, one of the two. But an issue like that never happened again. So if there's anything about an imperfect hero that you would want to point out, it's one that learns from their mistakes. And that is true. That's the general idea, or that that's that's what I took away as well from your writings. But you know, you did bring something to my attention in in an email earlier, and that is a piece. And I'm I'm trying to remember if this is in your book, and I do apologize. It's been a, a little bit of a while since I've read your book, but you did mention the other day how, with regards to Gaul sacking Rome, and then. Camilla's coming out of exile to help save the day. Aristotle actually credited somebody else and not Camillus. And you did mention that he uh, credited an individual by the name of Lucius, but does not provide any other any other names or a full name for this Lucius. So we don't know who this individual could possibly be. And it goes back to the idea of did if Camillus being a real human being or a historical character in Rome, is he the one that helped Rome or helped save Rome or, or should credit go elsewhere? Well, let me take a step back and kind of remind some of your readers uh, of that particular story. So we're going to be looking at around 390 BC, according to Veronian t uh, chronology, but it probably is more like 387 or 386. Camillus is living in exile in Ardia, and meanwhile, the Senones are trying to sack a city named Clusium, which is, you know, maybe 100 miles, 80 to 100 miles away from Rome. Well, they want some help because they don't want to be sacked. So they ask the Romans, they're like, please come help us. Well, the Romans weren't allied with them, but, you know, they're always going to be skeptical and, and curious of any sort of warlike people that are in the area. So they send some ambassadors up there to meet with the Senones and try to orchestrate some sort of peace deal or at least gain some intelligence. And they even enter the camp under, you know, the law of nations, as I believe what, what Livy called it. Essentially, it was a, an oath of neutrality. So you came in peace and you were there just as a mediator and you would leave and you wouldn't participate in war. Well, these were three brothers. They're from the Fabius family, which is a, a, a very storied family. And the conversations with the king of, of the Sinones, the primary chieftain uh, known as Brennus, did not go well. So they essentially stormed out and they joined with the Clusians and fought against uh, the Sinone. So they actually broke the law, or violated the law of nations in that. And in fact, one of the Fabius brothers killed one of the chieftains, not Brennus, a different one, and despoiled his body, took all of his uh, of his uh, whatever riches that he had on them. So this this made the Sinones furious, and they were like, "We're actually going to take stop our war with Clusium, and now we're going to deal with Rome." according to history, or according to the canonical version, I should say. But they didn't immediately try to march on Rome like you would expect these wild barbarians to do. Instead, they, they sent ambassadors down there offering the Romans to do what was right, surrender the people who, who wronged them so that they could be punished. And the Romans refused to do that. In fact, they elected the three Fabius brothers as consular tribunes. So Brennus decided that was it. He's going to march for Rome. And he did. And at the Battle of the Alia, which is uh, you know a handful of miles outside of Rome, he routes Rome's troops. He doesn't kill that many, but they just flee pretty early on in the battle. And most of them take refuge in the ruined city of Vey, while 
some make it to Rome and they essentially are like, oh, all is lost. We've been destroyed in battle and they didn't even bar the gate of Rome, supposedly. So the people of Rome leave in this uh, uh, cavalcade, an exodus out of the city trying to find refuge and they go to, some of them go to a city, Cairo, perhaps other places as well. And along this exodus, are the Vestal Virgins, which is this part of this cult that's very important to Rome. And it's these venerated women that are walking, probably perhaps barefoot, depending if you uh, believe some of the accounts. And this poor man, this pauper, this plebeian, sees the Vestal Virgins. His name is Lucius Albinius, and he offers them to use his cart. And he gets out of it, his family gets out, and then he helps the Vestal Virgins make it to Cairo. Meanwhile, all of Rome has fallen to these barbarians, to these Gauls, with the exception of the Capitoline Hill. But Brennus can't take it. For whatever reason, he's not very good at sieges. Uh, the Romans up there are just strong enough to keep him from being able to take everything. So this eventually someone sneaks out and goes over to Camillus and they beg him to come uh, save them, which he agrees to do it. But the people on the Capitoline Hill, after waiting for Camillus for so long, they must have thought that all was lost. Rather than starving to death, they agreed to a humiliating compromise peace deal with the Sinones, and that was that they would give them 1,000 pounds of gold, which is uh, a colossal sum. So they start handing all this gold over to Brennus and, and, uh, and the Gauls, and they're weighing it, but the Romans, are they start to notice something's up, something's funny with these uh, Gallic scales, and it turned out the Gauls had rigged them so that they could get more than 1,000 pounds. And the consular tribune Sulpicius even says, you know, what, what does this mean? Or what means this? Depending on the translation you want to look at. And, you know, full of swagger, Brennus walks up, pulls his sword off of his belt and throws it onto the scales. And, well, I'm sorry, at that point, that's when the consular tribune asked him what means this. And that's when Brennus says, vi victus, woe to the vanquished. Uh, and his point was clear. The Romans were defeated, at least he thought. And they were at his mercy. But it was at this time that Camillus marches into Rome and he uh, interrupts this process and actually says that there's no legal standing for this peace agreement because they appointed him dictator. And dictators were the supreme leaders, so he wouldn't uh, approve this peace agreement. So he, he pushes the Gauls out and destroys them uh, beyond the city. So that's the canonical view. But as you mentioned, uh, Aristotle said someone named Lucius saved the Romans, not Camillus. Some people have, have theorized that maybe he was talking about Lucius Albinius, but if we're being honest with each other, I mean, Lucius is a pretty common name in old Rome. and might as well be calling them John here or Peter. But then you can look at Diodorus, you can look at Strabo, you can look at Suetonius, and they offer different alternatives where it looks like maybe Camillus didn't save the day. At least according to those three accounts, they make no mention of Camillus stopping this in the process and kicking the, the Gauls out. He may have, one, said that he defeated them in battle at a later time and may have recollected some of the gold. Uh, an ancient author said that it was actually Kyra who who defeated the Gauls and collected the gold. And then Suetonius talks about uh, a member of the uh, Livia Drusi who defeated a Gaul in, in single combat. And that was the process by which he recovered all of Rome's gold. So there's a lot to unwrap here and a lot to discuss. So did Camillus eject the Gauls? I mean, it really depends on which account you want to look at. I think you do need to give special credence to Diodorus, a uh, very serious uh, ancient author, and Strabo as well. Perhaps he, part of this was a, a creation. But again, I do want to point out that no modern historian that's serious questions whether or not Camillus was a real person of major significance in ancient Rome. It's just this instance may have been exaggerated. In fact, I think 
think TJ Cornell, uh, the esteemed historian, said that perhaps Rome they fell out with their ally, Kyra. So instead of giving them the glory, they just decided to give it to Camillus instead. Camillus or not, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the archaeology also doesn't necessarily reflect the narrative we have. Am I wrong? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, so first of all, one, according to some accounts, the Romans actually paid the Gauls to leave, and that was that. So that was incredibly humiliating. So they may have wanted to create a different narrative that uh, reflected a little bit better on them, which, you know, I can understand that. But also within the canonical account, you know, there's talks about how the Gauls laid uh, besieged the Capitoline Hill for I don't know, maybe eight or so months. I mean, from July to February. And during that process, they laid waste to the city. They raised it. They were toppling buildings. They were acting as the Romans would have expected barbarians to act. Uh, So we would expect to find in the archaeological record, perhaps a a big layer where it had been burned. We would expect to see more evidence, but the archaeological evidence does not suggest widespread mayhem. So one, the siege may have been much, much shorter and not nearly as as intense as the ancient writers like to uh, like to portray. So after this event with the uh, the Gauls, Rome is humiliated um, with what happened. Whether it's Camillus or somebody else who saved the day, or they paid off the Gauls to to just go away. What happened then? How did the Romans change their foreign policy or the way they approach these external threats to ensure that it didn't happen again? Yeah, I mean, according to the ancient writing, a lot changed after the Gallic sack. So for starters, some of the, the Romans, they kind of considered abandoning Rome. They wanted to move to Vey. They thought it was in a little bit better shape than Rome, probably more defensible. And, you know, they had fertile fields. We'll go there. Thankfully, Camillus worked to ensure that they they reconsidered. They wouldn't offend the gods and abandon their city. So they, they decided after some, you know, strenuous debate to stay in Rome, thanks to, in large part, Camillus's work. And they started to rebuild it, at least according to the canonical version. But I think around this time, whether or not some of these subtopics really happen, around this time, Rome has to be looking around and thinking about what is best for us. We're surrounded by enemies or potential enemies. It turns out that even the the some of their alliances weren't very strong. So I think this is the point that we can really look and say, Rome's foreign policy changed. They decided that they would go on the offensive, and they figured if they were on the the offensive, they wouldn't be on the defensive, and they always seemed to see an enemy on the horizon. And whether this was led by Camillus, which uh, some modern historians, at least one, has suggested that Camillus was instrumental in this change in foreign policy. And what you see is war after war after war, many led by Camillus, whether it's with Latins, whether it's with Etruscans or whoever. But Rome starts to grow its influence further and further, and they try to keep the enemies at bay. The good thing about uh, the Roman Republic around this time and even later is, you know, they would go to a city and they may beat you up. But afterwards, they say, but, you know, now you could be our friend and you can take part in all the spoils of this grand enterprise that we put together, uh, which is pretty smart on their part. Well, so long as they served for the army, right? 
Yes, it didn't always turn out very well, but uh, that was certainly a, a positive spin on uh, how they treated them. And, and there were certain uh, defeated people, certain allies that got preferential treatment, whereas others, they bear, bore the brunt of some of the fighting. But with this, we we see Camillus and Rome leading the charge, pushing out as their borders start growing, as they're growing their alliances, and as they're really becoming a massive power broker, uh, not just in Central Italy, but out on the periphery as well. And I think there's, at least according to one theory, you can thank Camillus for this, and you might also be able to thank the sack of Rome for this. Actually, I did want to shift focus on something that I stumbled on. Well, not I didn't stumble on it. It was everywhere. It was reported everywhere. It was reported even on CNN. I mean, all over social media. And it's it's something that was started on TikTok, a trend on TikTok. I think you know where I'm headed with this. And it was something along lines of women asking their significant others if, you know, they think about Rome or, or, you know, Romans or Roman history or, you know, just anything Roman. So this whole TikTok trend was just videos of women asking their men about Rome. And it was amazing as to how many men out there think about it. So my wife, before this be actually broke out and became news, my wife actually said, you know, she tried it on me. So she saw this trend. She tried it on me. I didn't know about this trend. I don't even have a TikTok account, but that's okay. <laughs> and she asked me, do you think about Rome? I'm like, yeah, all the time. So she thought it was hilarious. I'm like, well, why? Why do you ask? You know, so she tells me about this trend. I'm like, well, I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else, but I'm, I'm a historian uh, by passion. So I think about all this kinds of stuff. And yes, like all the time. I mean, maybe not every literal day, but I think about Rome pretty regularly. And I don't know, I thought it was interesting because of just, you know, how this trend started and how many, you know, individuals out there admitted to this. But I also see you as a trendsetter. You know, you, you, you're writing these books, you're getting people interested in these various topics, but you're just as guilty as I am. I mean, I certainly think about Rome an awful lot. And just like you, I do not have a TikTok but someone brought this to my attention. Maybe it was my wife as well. And I like to think that she thinks about Rome a lot more now that she's married to a Roman historian than at least before. But it's an interesting phenomenon how many women out there were shocked that their husbands think about Rome or the Roman Empire on a daily basis. And, you know, candidly, we have a lot of lot to think about. I mean, if Rome was founded in, you know, let's just say the 750s BC and the last vestiges of Rome didn't fall until the 1400s. I mean, there's an awful lot of history. And then if you want to think about how the Catholic Church in some way seems like the continuation, at least in structure, to some of the later Roman Empire, we've got a lot of think, a lot to think about. And I hope everyone continues to think about Rome every day. It's also ingrained in our government in the U.S. here. We essentially function very similar to the Republic that was established in ancient Roman times. So you have a lot of Roman values and culture and, and everything ingrained in our in our nation, let alone all the Latin phrases and, and, and loan words and, and everything else in between. When people think of uh, the military, our military, a lot of times our minds go back to ancient Roman Greece. I don't know. I, I just find it interesting. 
I can't speak for others, but it's <laughs> it was uh, a fascinating trend, nonetheless. I'm curious as to if uh, there's something else out there that uh, that many people uh, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe uh, we'll come to find out that uh, you know people are going to be thinking of Gilgamesh. or or something else and and we just don't know about it right i don't know i don't know uh, about gilgamesh i'm throwing that out there i know nobody except for me cares about gilgamesh i'm i'm uh i think about gilgamesh sometimes but i mean you're right it'd be about it being ingrained uh in us to some degree i mean our constitution was in part based on the roman republic's uh unwritten constitution many of the people of the roman republic were kind of heroes to some of our founders and strangely some of the ones that probably shouldn't have been heroes are alexander hamilton i think he said that the greatest man to ever live was julius caesar which is really weird because he's the one that helped topple the roman republic that the american republic is kind Kind of based on it's a weird role model that i have especially since he it, i'm not a huge julius caesar fan and this has gotten me in a little bit of trouble before but he was kind of a murderous power hungry tyrant <laughs> maybe that's not what we want here i mean a lot of them that uh came after julius caesar also my mind immediately wanders to uh none other than caligula when it comes to uh murderous and uh just total nuts with uh an interesting uh history yeah, him and and Nero. I mean, some of the, the yeah and Caesar, Nero. Yeah, some of the early Caesars, like they have some wild histories. I mean, you have to wonder how much of it is really true. Like some of the salacious stuff, you have to wonder how much of that is true. And I think uh, Suetonius and, and some of those other biographers, they they include some stuff that's pretty questionable. But I think we could probably all agree that Nero and Caligula probably not the best emperors that Rome had. No, no, but you know they they are good for uh, entertainment, are they not? Yeah. <laughs> They are. They you need are. you need scandalous individuals to to provide uh, entertainment. I mean, if if it were boring history, then nobody would care except for you and I. It, well, it's not boring then, of course. But you know, <laughs> one of the people that you know, I think we should probably study more. Well, two of them actually. Toward the later Roman Republic, Cato the Younger, very principled individual, perhaps so principled that he was uncompromising, but someone that is worthy of research. That and Cicero. Cicero, you know, I think he was more the person willing to compromise to try to hold the Republic together. And it's role models like those that I think we need, especially when we're in kind of tenuous times uh, here in the U.S. And, you know, not obviously not getting political, but, you know, we don't want to mimic what some of the later Roman Republic did with the way that their kind of government would uh, essentially grind to a halt. I mean, you know, even in in uh, in Camillus's era, they supposedly had a period of anarchy where they wouldn't even allow elections. So the state kind of languished. So some of that stuff we probably don't want to uh, idealize. Instead, we should be looking at people like Camillus, Cicero, and Cato the Younger to try to find a better path. And that's uh, very well said. I I couldn't agree more. And to that, I wanted to uh, thank you again. As always, uh, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing uh, these topics with you. I wanted to remind our listeners, uh, be on the lookout. You can buy it now, right, on on Amazon and and, and anywhere else that sells... uh, that sells books, that sells history books. <laughs> uh, Marcus Furius uh, Camillus, The Life of uh, Rome's Second Founder. Amazing read. I, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, you are a, a great uh, researcher, author. I I had a good time reading this. So uh, thank you again. Uh, it, did anything, uh, any last words uh, for uh, our listeners before we end the episode? 
Well, first of all, you're too kind. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. You know, we're going to have to do this again soon. And I hope your readers stay tuned because uh, there's going to be a fourth book coming out here in a little bit. Can you give us uh, a hint at the, as to who it's about or you want to keep it a secret? It's going to be uh, a Roman emperor that I think a lot of people have heard of, but for some reason he's been neglected by time. Oh, already sounds exciting. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off.